0: We'll go ahead and open back up to Mark chapter 4. And I'd like to start this morning by posing a a question. Is honesty really the best policy? I remember asking myself that question when I had been dating my wife, Lauren, for a few months. And uh, we'd gotten to the point in our relationship where it was time to have the talk. I'm not talking about the marriage talk. I'm talking about the scarier talk. The talk before the marriage talk, where you like sort of like dump all your dirty laundry and skeletons in your closet and you just empty it all out and you're like, here's who I am, you know? And I remember asking myself, is this really the best thing for our relationship? Is honesty really the best policy? Because I remember being terrified to have the talk. And and those of you that know, You know, when you're dating someone and you get to that point in the relationship where you're like, you know what, I think God's taking this somewhere. They've stolen my heart, but first, I've got to let you know what you're getting into. That was exactly how I felt in our relationship. And so I remember God laying it on my heart very clearly that it was time to have this talk. And and I was terrified. I mean, absolutely terrified because my wife grew up on the opposite sides of the track than me. You know, I didn't get saved until I was 25 years old. I I spent most of my life um, living for myself and doing whatever was right in my own eyes. And so my wife, she grew up in church. She grew up on Little House on the Prairie and the Waltons. And uh, I mean, she grew up in youth group. She sang in the choir. I grew up on Beavis and Butthead, okay, totally. And, And listen, she grew up idolizing, you know, Michael Landon. My favorite rap group growing up was N.W.A. And don't Google that now, okay, Google that later, if you don't know what NWA stands for. Because listen, I idolized Eazy-E and Ice Cube and you know Yella and M.C. Wren and all these Dr. Dre, that's who I idolized growing up. And so, Beavis and Butthead meets Michael Landon was our relationship, because that was our upbringing. And so I remember being terrified about having the talk because in my mind, I'm thinking, she's probably got a few things she's gonna share about her past. I have like Excel spreadsheets of like information, you know? It's like Battleship. I'm like turned to B12, you know? (laughs) I mean, I've got all the stuff in my file. And and so, you know, I'm thinking in my mind, she's probably going to confess to me that she snuck out a few times during high school. And like my opener, literally my opener is, first of all, uh, I was picked up by the police and ticketed for being drunk in public in 97, okay? That's my opener. It's all downhill from there. And so I'm terrified. Because I'm like, is she gonna understand where I'm coming from? Because listen, you can't have a talk too soon or else you'll scare people off, okay? You gotta play your cards right. It's like Seinfeld, where George wants to tell his girlfriend that he loves her, and Jerry's like, are you sure? Are you, su- are you confident in the I love you return? Because if you say I love you, and you don't get a return on that I love you, that's a pretty big matzo ball that's out there, right? It's exactly how I felt. I'm like, am I gonna dump and then be dumped? And so I remember being terrified and, and, and thinking to myself, is honesty really the best policy? Because listen, I'd just read Francis Chan's Crazy Love. I'd just been, you know, reminded that honesty is the best thing for a relationship and you need to be honest about who you are and where you've been. But I remember thinking, is this all worth the hassle? Shouldn't we just let sleeping dogs lie? I was a different person then. I'm a different person now. Is this really necessary? Why not just bury all this and then move on? And there was a battle going on. But listen, I remember during that time being conflicted, but I stepped out in faith, and I trusted what God was leading me to do. And I want you to know, it absolutely galvanized our relationship. And there were tears. There was tears. There was a lot of questions, many, many questions. But what I feared God might use to drive us apart. God actually used to bring us closer together. And you guys know this. When you go through hard times in relationships, it's like a fractured bone. When it heals, it's usually stronger than before. And God used that to galvanize our relationship. And my wife is a tremendously gracious and forgiving person. I thank God for her. I thank God for her. But I bring that up because many of us go through seasons where We feel God is leading us to be honest about something in our lives. Maybe it's being honest to an unbelieving friend or family member about the gospel. Maybe it's being honest and confessing a sin we've been hiding for many years. Maybe it's being honest with a friend who's going down a path that's going to blow their entire life up. And we think to ourselves, is honesty really the best policy? Because we think in our minds, won't this just make matters worse? Isn't this just going to blow up and jack up the relationship? Well, this morning, Jesus promises us. He promises us that honesty is indeed the best policy. And I've got three points this morning from our text. Okay, three points and then I'm out of your way. Okay, first of all, Jesus says honesty is the only hope for the world. It's in verses 21 and 22. Honesty is the only hope for the world. Secondly, honesty is vital for the health of a church. And third, honesty is the best thing for us personally. It's the best thing. Well, first of all, Jesus teaches us and promises us that honesty is the only hope for the entire world. Look at verses 21 and 22 again, please. And he said to them, "'Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed?' And not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now, stop right there. We crash landed in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, and so just to bring you up to speed, in the first 20 verses of this chapter, Jesus has just finished teaching people that we're saved by faith and not works. He just finished telling us that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. People that place their faith in a message, okay? So we don't go to heaven based upon doing a lot of good deeds. We go to heaven based upon faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this section builds upon the one that's come before because Jesus wants Christians to share the gospel message that they've received with the world. You know, as it's been said, if God has shown you the way, then light the path for others, that's what we're called to do with our Christian lives. And that's the reason why he calls us lamps in verse 21. He says, you guys are lamps to a dark world. And God has not lit you up for you to be hidden under a basket or under a bed. And so we're called to be useful to this dark and dying world. And so Jesus calls us to share the gospel message with other people. And listen, we can never forget that the gospel is the only hope for the world. The gospel is the only hope for the world. I mean, do you realize what it would take for Christianity to die off? All it would take is this. This is scary. All it would take is one generation of Christians just not sharing the gospel. That's it. You can't get saved without understanding and hearing the gospel. And so all it would take is just one generation of Christians to just assume the gospel, forget it, press home moralism, and then, you know what, Christianity would get wiped off the face of the earth. And I realize some people are like, well, God wouldn't let that happen because God is sovereign. Listen, God is sovereign, but God also calls man to be responsible. Amen? In fact, as St. Augustine said, the early reformer, he said, without God, man cannot, but without man, God will not. So the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are like two railroad tracks in scripture. They never cross, okay? They never get sideways. They all, you always see them together. God is in charge of who comes to believe, but you're also called to repent and believe. And so God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together. And listen, the church is God's plan to reach the world. This is game seven. There's no tomorrow. There is no plan B. There is no second line of defense. If the church drops the ball on this, it's game over. And we can never forget the fact that we are called to be lights to the world. We're lamps. We're called to be lights to a dark and a confused and a dying world. And all it would take for Christianity to get wiped off the map is for one generation of Christians to say, you know what, I'm not sharing the gospel. God's sovereign. He's going to find someone else to share the gospel. That's all it will take. And so gospel honesty is the only hope for the world. It's the only hope. Now, being honest, the reason we don't evangelize is because evangelizing can be very awkward. In fact, it's been said evangelism is two very nervous people having a conversation together, okay? That's evangelism. And that's why at Grace Life we have gone out of our way to destigmatize evangelism. You know, uh, we don't ask you to stand on street corners here with bullhorns and huge signs that say turn or burn, okay? We don't have you pass out you know, tracks with giant red flames on the front. We don't have you do any of that here. We don't ask you to do any of that kind of stuff. Listen, and we believe in the hard stuff here at Grace Life, we just don't think you're supposed to start with the hard stuff. Because actually it's best to win a person to Christ if you don't punch them in the face first, right? <laughs> So we believe in something here called relationship evangelism. And it's cliche, but it's true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you you care. It's cliche. It's true. Before you can share the gospel with someone, you have to first have a relationship with them. doesn't mean you have to be friends for 50 years, but it means there has to be a relationship. In fact, it's been said relationships are like the eggs in the meatloaf of evangelism, Okay? That's what they are. That's Tommy Clayton, okay? He's from Arkansas, he gets a lot of meatloaf. He's the first person to say that. Relationships to evangelism are like the eggs in the meatloaf. Cuz if you make meatloaf and you put all the ingredients in there, you know, the cilantro and the celery and all that, the seasoning, but you forget the eggs, it's going to fall apart. It's going to be like a jello mold, okay, all over your plate, jiggling around. The meatloaf is held together by the eggs. And so in the same way, relationships are the eggs in the meatloaf. And so here's the deal. People will never truly listen to you or do what you're asking them to do until they first trust you. Until they first trust you. That's the bottom line. Asking them to place their faith in Christ, in a God whom perhaps their entire life they've been running from, if you just meet them on the pier, and douse some, you know, hellfire and brimstone nuggets on them and then run off, guess what? They're going to get, first of all, really offended, and second of all, they're not going to listen to a word you have to say because you have no credibility with them. Relationships are the first step in evangelism, and I realize some of us are like, you know, we work long hours. Some of you like, I work 80 hours a week. I don't have time to do relationship evangelism. I would say this. It's a myth to say you're too busy, for relationships because everyone in this room does two things every single week that allow them to make relationships and live like a missionary, okay? Two things. First of all, you eat. You eat. Unless you're solar powered, dude, you eat at least three times a day. And here's here's a cool idea. At lunchtime, at your job, invite unbelievers out for lunch. Just invite them out for lunch. Get to know them. Ask about their lives. Ask how you can pray for them. Get to know them. Invite them over for dinner maybe. Invite unbelievers out for lunch at your job. And and listen, I know when we get busy, we think we have less of an opportunity to evangelize. But you know what? When you have a really rigid schedule and you have a strict routine every day, that's actually more conducive for evangelism. Because listen, the whole world usually lives on a routine as well. And so when you're going to your job every morning and you get coffee, go to the exact same gas station and get coffee every morning. You'll tend to see the same people there. You'll get to know the counter clerk, and you'll get to know the cashier. You can begin to develop relationships with people. You know, It doesn't take that long. In fact, I mean, it can take five minutes a day to develop, I think, a semi-meaningful relationship with someone. And I know this for a fact. The ladies at the racetrack on Saxon love me. Seriously, they love me. I come in, they're like, Pastor Jeff, what's up? You know, And you know what? I go get iced tea there every single morning. I go get iced tea there, and I've gotten to know the people there. Um, I pray for them. And something else I do is I take my receipt from racetrack, and I go fill out the racetrack survey online, and I give them good feedback about their work. Because listen, society is, is negative Society, our world today, is critical. They complain. They bellyache about everything. Those ladies have a a clean gas station. They're friendly and they're kind. And you know what? People are constantly giving them bad feedback. And so I go on there and I tell the truth. I I speak honestly about my experience. And I filled out like 50 of those racetrack receipts. And you know what? The ladies love me for it because I'm honest. I'm like, these people are so kind. They're so nice. This place is always clean. It is. I never see crumbs there. I never see dirt there. That's why I go there. And I've built this very meaningful relationship with these ladies over the last couple years. And you know what? That's like five minutes or less a day. You know, you've heard of five-minute abs. This is five-minute relationship evangelism, okay? It's totally there for the taking. And so if you're going to get coffee, go to the same place every day. If you eat lunch, go to Subway every Monday. Go to TGI Fries every Tuesday. Go to the same places. Meet the regulars. Find your routine, and you can get to know people. Ask for the same waitress or waiter to wait on you every time. It's a really easy way to do relationship evangelism. And so the first thing that we all do every day is we eat. We eat. The second thing we do every day is we live in a neighborhood. We live in a neighborhood. And, you know, I have learned through church planting and, and, and stepping out in faith to, uh, to come over here to Deltona, I have learned the number one mission field is your next-door neighbors. Seriously, that's our 1040 window, is our neighbors that live around us, okay? And and people had something 50 years ago that they don't have today. It's called friends. They had real friends 50 years ago. They had people that knew them, people that cared about them, people that were involved in their life. And, And everyone today is isolated. You know, you go to work, you're in a cubicle, you're in a voting booth for eight hours a day. And then for lunch, they watch ESPN, and they bring a brown bag, and they don't talk to anyone. Then they come home and they watch Netflix, and, and listen. How many of us live in neighborhoods that you never even see people outside anymore? I've talked to some of you. That's how my neighborhood is. Seriously, Saturday afternoon, I can drive down the road and not see a soul. You know, I'm like, it's, I ask myself, the children of the corn strike? Is Malachi here? You know, with a band of you know teenagers? Did they, like, wipe the village out, or is the rapture happening and I got left behind because I'm too funny? I mean, what's going on here? I ask myself that because no one seems to be out and about in my neighborhood. The only time I see folks is when they drive by and they wave at me in their cars, okay? So they drive by, they wave, and then they pull in their driveway. The garage goes up, they pull in, and the garage goes down. That's it. That's all I see. I mean, I don't know if these people even have legs. All I see is from the torso up, you know? It's crazy, Uh, This is is the world we live in, and you know, it's not healthy. It's totally not healthy. In fact, there's some research that's starting to come out, and America is the most touch-deprived nation in the world. Touch-deprived. You know, Melissa Affalter has studied this a little bit, and she sent me some research um, about a very interesting study that psychologists did. These psychologists got together, and they observed people from different countries and different nationalities. They observed them having coffee together and talking for a long period of time. And they analyzed things like body language and affection and how warm they were. And listen, the the results blew, blew me away, seriously. Listen to this. Two French people talked over coffee for two hours. They touched 110 times. This is not husband and wife, okay? These are a couple friends. Two French people, 110 times, okay? Two Puerto Ricans talk for two hours over coffee. They touched 180 times. Yeah, muy caliente, right? <laughs> now, this is the sad part here, okay? Two Americans talk for two hours over coffee. They touched twice. Twice. And you, you know what that was. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. And then when they left, you get a side hug, and then that's it, you know? <laughs> that's like a jail visit, dude. You get closer in jail than you do there. You laugh, that's the American culture. I've spoken before, this is a very moralistic culture we live in because of our heritage, our religious heritage that jacks everything up. And not only that, but when you throw um, perversion into the equation and everyone's worried about perverts and, you know, men are afraid even to hug anyone anymore because they don't want anything getting thrown back in their face. So men get around people, they mind folks, they're like, you know, they don't even get near people because everything in the name of purity has been outlawed. Any kind of touching at all is taboo. Because, man, you see the way they shook hands there? I don't know about that, you know? That's our culture. That's the culture we live in, an extremely moralistic culture. And listen, that's our friends. That's our neighbors. They eat lunch alone. They work alone. They hang out alone. And listen, that's, that's a community of people that are desperate for some eggs in their meatloaf. They are. They're starving for some eggs in their meatloaf. And people are longing for love, for affirmation they don't just want you to be friendly, they want you to be their friend. It's all the difference in the world. You know, people in our country are so touch deprived that universities and colleges are starting to do this during finals week. They're starting to actually give out free hugs during finals to help de-stress the students because they are so touch deprived. And I'm not talking about promiscuity, okay? That's something totally different. That's not actual true intimacy and closeness. But these college students are so touch-deprived, they're actually giving hugs, free hugs during finals week. In fact, for the last six years, Indiana University has actually started running puppies during finals week so that students have something to cuddle with and love on and receive affection back from and hug, and it helps them calm down and de-stress for finals week. This is a culture in America where people desperately need some eggs in their meatloaf. They're looking for love, for affirmation, and I, and I say, let's give it to them. Let's give them at least a side hug or something. And so when you go home today and, and when you're at home this afternoon and you see your neighbors, think in your mind, these are people, if they had a two-hour coffee, they'd touch someone twice. So when they drive by and keep it superficial and wave, flag them down, dude. Block the road off, right? Put the window down. Shake their hand. Hey, how are you doing, right? Invite them over to dinner. Invite them over for a barbecue, Invite them over to watch the NBA Finals coming up. It's going to be awesome. Get to know them. If you see them out cutting their grass, go over and talk to them. If they're recluses and they don't come outside ever, bake some brownies and go over and knock on their door and give them some brownies. It may look weird, I know, but do it. No one does that anymore. And I'll tell you what, it will go a long, long way. And when trouble hits, and it always does, they will know exactly where to go if they have questions, if they need someone to talk to, You don't have to be overly pushy. You don't have to get to the gospel the first visit. Just make a relationship and build upon it. And and listen, if you flag people down the road and if you knock on their doors and they don't answer and you leave the brownies on the mat, if you do all this and people still don't want to be your friend, I have a a fail-safe method, okay? This this works 100% of the time, I guarantee you, to reach your neighbors, okay? It's build a half pipe in your garage, okay? Seriously, build a half pipe in your. I did this over Christmas break. I met all my neighbors, seriously. And you won't have to knock on their door. You'll, they'll come, you'll meet people that you never even knew lived in your neighborhood. Because I built a half pipe, I mean, I had all, they were busting people into our neighborhood, man, to come see my half pipe. And so I guarantee you get some plywood, you get that circular saw going at 9 30, 10 at night. The HOA will be over there. Everyone will want to know what's going on in your neighborhood, okay? And so a great way to meet your neighbors is to be out, to make friends, to be friendly to invite them to dinner, home projects, you will meet your neighbors. And listen, relationship evangelism is possible because all of us do two things every single day. We eat and we live in a neighborhood. And when it comes down to it, Jesus wants us to be honest and to share the gospel because the gospel is the only hope for the world. People cannot be saved unless they understand and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's the first point. Second of all, honesty is vital for a healthy church. Honesty is vital for a healthy church. The church is supposed to be this place of radical honesty and transparency, and we're called to be a kingdom of truth-tellers. And what's very interesting is that this parable is mentioned in two other Gospels by Jesus. And every time he mentions this parable, it's related to hypocrisy and deception and a warning against it. And the disciples are encouraged to be honest and open and transparent and have integrity to confess their sin. Jesus wants the church to be a culture of honest truth-tellers, okay? And nothing will jack up a church faster than dishonesty and secrecy. Nothing will make the church toxic quicker. And, And we don't slide into honesty easily. We have to fight for a culture of honesty in the church. Nobody comes to church and just is honest and open and transparent about their sin, about their struggles, about your struggles. No one is. We we actually fall into secrecy. And so we're called to fight for two areas of honesty in the church. First of all, as Andrew just displayed, we're called to be honest with others about their struggles. We're called to be honest about other Christian struggles. And, And here's the deal. We all have blind spots. The church is not a showroom. We all don't have ball gowns on, ballroom gowns. You know, this is not a showroom. This is a construction site. We all have hard hats on. We all have sin. We all still sin in thought, word, and deed. And here's the deal. We all see things in other people from time to time that need to be confronted in love, that need to be talked about. We all sing things from time to time. But our tendency is this. When we see something in another person, our tendency is to squash it and say, you know what? I'm not talking to them about that. And the devil likes to whisper in our ear this. He says, listen, don't say anything, because if you say anything, that's going to jack the relationship up, and it's going to be awkward every time you see them. And you know what? They may turn around and say something about you and about sin in your life, and it's best to let sleeping dogs lie. That's how we reason most of the time. We see something that clearly needs to be talked about. I'm not talking about a little piccadillo sin, like this person's not reading their Bible. I'm talking about this guy's about to blow his marriage and his life up. And we see it, and at best... We remain quiet and secret and we squash it. At worst, you know what we do? We gossip about it to other people. We gossip. And as Christians, you know, we we Christianize gossip because we put a Christian spin on it and and we we call it concern. I'm just concerned for so and so. So we go up and we're like, hey, dude, you know, have you noticed? Do you notice the way that, uh, you know, Bill talks to his wife? Have you noticed that, you know? Oh, okay, I'm just making sure I wasn't the only one. I didn't want to be overly legalistic or anything, you know. We, we give this, this Christian spin to gossip, and we label it concern. And listen, it sounds very innocent and pious. It sounds like, you know what, the checking principle is a really good, good idea. Here's the reason it's deadly. In Proverbs 26, we read, The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down into the innermost parts. I know that's a strange verse. You're like, what in the world are you talking about? Have you ever known someone that's been on a diet and they're like on this super strict, like no carbs, no, I'm not allowed anything but like boiled fish and acorns and water, you know, not even like tap water, dude. It's gotta be like bottled smart water, okay? And then they break the diet and they eat like peanut butter fudge, chocolate cake, and they're like, you know what? That went right to my thighs, you know? You know what I'm talking about? The, it went right to my thighs comment. That's exactly what, The writer of Proverbs is saying, because when you eat that chocolate cake and you say it went right to my thighs, what you're saying is this. This is going to stick with me and it's going to be very, very hard to get rid of it because I ate something very, very bad for me. That's exactly what the author of Proverbs is saying here. He's saying, you know what? Words of a gossip. It's like triple fudge peanut butter cake. It's with you now. And it's going to be a booger to get rid of that. Because here's what's here's what happens with gossip. Once I go up and I say, hey man, have you seen the way that Dave talks to his wife? Once I say that to you, guess what? Every time you're around Dave and he's talking to his wife, guess what you're doing? You're looking and reading into things now. You're like, what do you mean by that? He said that a little stern, didn't he? You know, maybe he had too much caffeine that morning. I don't know that morning, you know? But you read into things, you're evaluating things, you're critiquing things. Words of a gossip have gone down into you. There may not be any truth at all to what I've said to you. It may be completely in my mind, but once I've said it to you, guess what? It's part of you now. Gossip goes straight to your thighs. It's exactly what the writer of Proverbs is saying. And so neither skirting an issue and squashing it or gossiping about something is healthy. Because here's the deal. The most healthy thing you can do when you see something in the life of another Christian is to talk to them about it. Because even if it's a misunderstanding, guess what? They get to explain themselves. And in Psalm 141, verse 5, this shows how powerful it is to give feedback to other Christians. Check this out. It says, let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil upon my head. I mean, here the psalmist actually welcomes feedback. From a Christian, from an honest man, not just from anyone, because some people are like the rebukinator. They, they want to rebuke everything. They're like, yeah, I got a bunch of stuff I've been waiting to get out on this person, you know? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about your little pet list. David says, I like righteous people to give me feedback because it's oil upon my head. You know what that phrase refers to in the Old Testament? It refers to anointing. There was three kinds of people in the Old Testament that usually received the anointing. Prophets, priests. And kings, and they would take oil and they would rub it on their forehead. And that symbolized that God's power and God's blessing would reside upon their life and their ministry. And David is saying this. He's saying, I love feedback from righteous people because that is the source of blessing and power over my life. Now that's a nugget and a half when you think about it because when I think about anointing, when someone says, man, that was anointed, or that guy's anointed, or that woman's anointed, you know what I think about? A person that's highly autonomous, that never needs any feedback, they go so deep in prayer, they have a direct line to God. They're like, okay, God, what play? Okay, sweep, you know, sweep left, got it. You know, they are so sure of themselves because they are so close to God, they never need any feedback. That's what I think about when I think of someone that's anointed. David says this. He says, actually, it's the opposite of that. The anointed person, the anointed woman or man, is a person that's so humble that they actually view feedback about their Christian performance as a source of blessing and power over their life. That's so counterintuitive. Honesty is so counterintuitive. This is the upside-down kingdom where honest feedback to another Christian is actually the source of blessing and power over their lives. And so the best thing you can do for another Christian, especially you see this brother about to dive off the deep end, blow his entire family up, make his kids hate him, fall out of fellowship with God, the best thing you can do, the most loving thing you can do, is to pull up a chair and confront him in love. It's the best thing you can do for him. That is a source of blessing and anointing over his life. And so we're called, first of all, to be honest about the struggles that we see in other Christians. And second of all, we're called to be honest about, here it is, the struggles in our own hearts. And this is where the preacher went from preaching to meddling, they say, right? Because this is a biggie here. This is so biggie. You know, our default mode in the church is not just to gossip. Our default mode is to be so hypocritical. And that's why we are experts usually of confessing other people's sins. But when it comes to our sins, we don't have anything to confess. And Jesus, in each of these parables that he tells throughout the Gospels about the parable of the lampstand and being lights, in each of those parables, he stresses the importance of integrity, transparency, honesty. Nothing is hidden except what will come to light. He's saying, be honest about who you are. Because nothing jacks up a church faster. Nothing makes the culture more toxic than secrecy and hypocrisy. Nothing does. In fact, if you don't have a culture of honesty and transparency in your church, you will never have genuine fellowship. Consider 1 John 1, 1.7. Listen to this. this. This blew me away the first time I realized this. John writes this. He says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have what? Fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. John says this, here is the requirement for us to have fellowship with one another. We've all got to walk in the light together. Now, the question is this, what does it mean to walk in the light? What's John talking about? Does walking in the light mean reading your Bible, praying, coming to church, doing all this stuff? What exactly does John mean about walking in the light? Well, it's interesting, if you keep reading the context, he tells us what walking in the light means. If we say we have no sin, very next verse, okay, very next verse. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What does it mean to walk in the light? What's John talking about when he says we must walk in the light? And if we do, we'll have fellowship with one another. He's talking about a culture of confession, of transparency, of not hiding and posturing over our sin. John is saying, if you don't have a culture of honesty in your church where people can actually come in and unload their skeletons and where they're at honestly, he's saying you won't have genuine fellowship. And that's tremendously sobering to me when I think about it because, listen, you can come to church you can sing songs about God, you can hear preaching about God, you can go to home group, you can do outreach. You can do all of those things, and yet there'll be one crucial element missing: confession of sin, and you not have true fellowship. That's exactly what John is saying. He's saying you can do all those things, be in church, in your Bible, you know, doing outreach, and not have genuine fellowship. And, and I'm convinced the number one reason why people who are super involved in church. I mean, they're at everything. They're at all the home groups, they're at all the prayer meetings, they're always at service, you know. The reason they feel lonely and isolated is because they lack confession and transparency over their sin. That's the number 1 reason, I'm convinced of it. I've seen it time and time again. Because if you don't have confession, if you don't have transparency, you'll you'll never have true fellowship. I mean, consider this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a whole book called Life Together. It's about life together as the church. This is what he said. He said, those who conceal their sin are left utterly alone. If you hide it, he said, you're all by yourself. And that's why it's possible for a Christian to attend daily worship, prayer, and service with other Christians, and yet still remain lonely. I feel so alone. And here it is. That is because the final breakthrough to community does not occur when we enjoy community with one another as holy people. It's not a bunch of people that have it all together that are getting together and talking about how great we have it together and how we need to reach people that don't have it together. That's not where the breakthrough comes. The breakthrough comes when we have fellowship and community with one another as unholy sinners. It's when people come and they say, I'm a sinner, I'm jacked up, I need grace, I need forgiveness, me, That's where fellowship really happens. That's where the breakthrough happens. Because until we stop posturing and pretending to be people that we aren't, we'll never have genuine fellowship and breakthrough. We'll never get there. I mean, you you guys know this is true because, think about it, when does your home group go from being just a Bible study to being fellowship? you know when you're in home group and you're like this is kind of boring and dry and it is not very fun when does it shift gears and go from that to like vibrancy and fellowship it's when someone gets the tissues out and says and they just start breaking down they're like i need prayer i just stop the bus i need prayer now that's when your home group becomes real it gets real right amen That's when it gets real, because people start to sit up in their seats, people get activated, that person with prayer jumps in the middle, starts praying for them, someone steps over over here, someone gets the clinics over there. That's when things go from being just a Bible study to actual fellowship, because someone has has actually gotten real and bared their burden, their soul, and you know what? It's like a domino effect. Everyone starts confessing. Everyone starts getting real, and you know what? You leave thinking, I'm so glad I went to that. It's because when we get real, that's when the Holy Ghost can move in and say, you know what, I'm going to bless this. Because God is not going to reside with the proud of heart. God is near to the brokenhearted. God dwells in two places in Isaiah 61 the high heavens and with the lowly. God does not dwell with the middle class, He doesn't go there. You're either perfect or you're lowly or you're nothing. And so the Holy Ghost can't get into your home group until everyone comes and says, you know what, I need prayer, I'm still broken, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. That is what the church is supposed to be about. We're not a group of called out all-stars. It's not like God came down here and said, I'll take LeBron and Steph and Clay and Draymond. No. God came down here and, and took the scrubs, okay, and said, I want them and them and them. And we're like, yep, without him, I'm, I'm a goner. And so, listen, if you have a home group, community plus confessions Equal fellowship, you got yourself a church, okay? Community minus confession, you have scholarship. you got yourself a Bible study there with what you got, okay? One of those you can get on a podcast. The other one you can get only in church. Because if you remove confession from the church, if you remove becoming honest and open and transparent with others, you're never going to have true fellowship. You're never going to grow close together. And this is the number one reason why doctrinally sound churches die. It's because they have a gospel doctrine, but they don't have a gospel culture. The culture is not gospel-centered. Jesus is not there saving, redeeming, rescuing, even the preacher. Everyone in there has their act together, and they also have the right theology to boot. And you know what? It causes gospel-driven gospelly, you know, doctrinated, you know, people that are like crazy theologians, it causes those churches to die. And that's why, you know, I'm sure you've talked to someone before that's le- left a church that had really, really good theology. I mean, maybe they had like super awesome theology. It was so like on point. And they left and you ask them, you're like, dude, why did you leave that church, you know? And you went to another church. And sometimes they'll say, you know what? I, I felt like I never connected there. You hear that a lot. I felt like I never connected now, now, what's behind that answer? What, what, what do they mean connected? What's that answer mean? It means relationships, not as holy people, though, but as sinners. It's like I, I, I didn't feel like I could let my hair down and actually talk about who I really am. That's why I didn't feel like I connected. I went in there, and everyone had their act together. And guess what? I was the lone black sheep, and so I, just, I didn't feel like I connected. I had to leave. And this is the number one reason why doctrinally sound churches die. And so, listen, honesty is so important for the church because without it, there won't be genuine anointing and power and blessing upon the people in that church, and there won't be genuine fellowship with the people that are inside of that church. You don't get those without honesty. So honesty is the best policy for the church as well. Well, third and finally honesty is the best thing also for us this is how jesus finishes off this section check out verse 24 and he said to them pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you for the one who has more will be given the one who has not even what he has will be taken away Now, here's the deal. This is like the most sobering part of this entire passage. Because here, Jesus explains that our honesty is actually directly related to our Christian walk. Like everything we've just talked about, Jesus said, honesty with unbelievers, honesty with our neighbor, honesty about where we're at. Jesus says, all this this honesty is directly related to your own spiritual walk. And Jesus says, listen, the more you hear and obey the more light you receive, the more understanding you receive from the Bible. On the flip side, the more you hear and you reject, the darker things get, the less you understand. Jesus said, when it comes to the Bible and understanding about God, you either use it or lose it. That's what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus is actually teaching us a principle in Scripture called the dimmer switch. This is the principle of the dimmer switch, okay? The dimmer switch... Works exactly in scripture the way it does in your house, okay? The more you obey, the more God cranks up the dimmer switch, the brighter things get, the more you can see in the Bible, the more you can obey, the more light you receive, the more God gives you. It's like this, this uh, vicious cycle. Like it's, actually, it's a good cycle. It's not vicious, but it's a cycle. The more you obey, the more light God gives you. On the flip side, the less you obey, God lowers the dimmer switch, the darker things get. The more you reject, the less god shows you the more you reject the less god it's the, that's a vicious cycle and this is why you know you you can know someone that's been on fire for god at one point in their life and like 2 years later they're completely burned out they're not in church and they're completely like on the fringes of like leaving the church altogether and you're like what happened to them principle of the dimmer switch is what happened they started to reject what god had revealed to them and you know what it got darker and darker and darker and darker and darker And this this principle of the dimmer switch, it's all over Scripture. Check this out. King David said this. He said, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. I'm smarter than all my foes, because your word is my constant God. I have more insight than all my teachers. All my seminary profs, I know more than them, for I'm always thinking of your laws. I'm wiser than even my elders. Even the folks that are the senior saints in my church, I got more knowledge than them. Why? for I have kept your commandments. David's like, listen, I've got more knowledge than my enemies, my professors, and the elders. How'd you get there, David? He said, I obeyed. I obeyed what God showed me from his word. This is the principle of the dimmer switch. And in this context, Jesus is telling us specifically that the amount of light he reveals to us is directly related to how honest we are in our personal lives with what he's given to us. And that means this, our understanding of God, our understanding of the gospel is directly related to our level of honesty with other people. Let me stop the car for a second, okay? Because this is super important, you know. Sometimes, sometimes a greater understanding of Christ, a greater understanding of God does not come from reading the Bible more. Sometimes it doesn't come from running out and getting the latest gospel-centered book that's on the bestseller list. Sometimes, Jesus is saying, sometimes the way forward in your understanding of God and the gospel and the things of God and spiritual things is to be honest about what you already know you're supposed to be doing. So it's not so much a matter of head knowledge. It's a matter of activating the head knowledge that you already have up there. And so sometimes stepping up and being honest about some area in your life where God has specifically laid upon your heart, Jeff, I want you to be honest in this area. I want you to man up, be honest. And until you do, the lights go out. God shows you nothing more. It's like God's telling you this, until you eat everything on your plate, I'm not giving you seconds. That's all I'm going to reveal to you until you're honest and you move forward in faith. This is what it looks like to trust God. This is what it looks like to trust God day by day, to be honest, to be transparent, to be broken, to be bold. And the reason why some people will stall out in their Christian lives, even though they're in church, they pray, they read the Bible, sometimes they will stall out. And the reason is this, because God has clearly revealed to them something that He wants them to do. They know exactly what they're supposed to do. They sense the Holy Spirit leading them to do it. And you know what? They check that thought. And they say, no, I'm not going there. And until they do, God's like, I'm not giving you anything else until you eat everything that's on your plate. And so this is so important. Guys, I've seen this play out so many times in my life, so many times. The principle of the dimmer switch, before I even understood this from the Scripture, I already saw it practically in my life. Because when I've gone through seasons where I felt like God really wanted me to you know, pick up the phone and call someone, uh, that's been in, in big trouble, you know, and, and, and they really need someone to talk to them and love about their sin, or when God's moved my heart to confess something to someone and get right and reconcile a relationship, and I've, when I've dragged my feet and said, you know, I've just i I've hemmed and hawed, I, I, don't, I don't want to make things worse. Whenever I've done that, seriously, the Bible is a closed book to me. I go to the Bible, I read, I have my quiet times, I feel like a spiritual crouton. I do, I'm dry, I'm stale, it's boring. The Bible's boring to me. I go to the Bible, I read, it's boring. There's nothing in here. This doesn't interest me. This is like the same thing I've read a million times over and over again. It's, it's like I would rather do anything else than that. Other times, God's revealed something to me, and when I act on it, when I finally repent and give in, it's like God like turns the floodlights on, the stage lights, stuff. Everything. I open the Bible up, I can't get more than like two sentences, and like stuff's flying off the page at me. God is like opening all kinds of new revelation to me and showing me all kinds of things about His character, His heart, His love that I never saw before. I mean, you can read a gospel-centered book by even a guy like Jared Wilson and get very little out of it. Why? Because it's more than the material. It's, It's about the state of your heart. It's about, are you moving forward? Are you owning what God has revealed to you? He wants to talk through you. He wants to use you. He showed you something so you can help someone else. And I'm telling you, when I've hemmed and hawed, I've drugged my feet, God's closed the book up. I can't get anything out of my quiet times. I'm like, this is so boring and dry. I feel like a crouton. The times that I've actually, you know, with fear and trepidation pushed through and been honest and it was awkward and painful at times or whatever it was, God has always blessed it. Because listen, honesty is the best thing for us. It's the best thing for us. It's the best thing for our walk It's the best thing for our spiritual heart, our spiritual state. You're not going to lose your salvation if you're not honest. But you can definitely jack up that relationship with God and his leading because when you don't move forward in honesty, God says, I'm not giving you anything else until you eat what's on your plate first. Honesty is the very, very best thing for us. And I want to close this morning by mentioning this. Some of you have come and, listen, you, you you feel like that spiritual crouton. You're like, I just feel dry and stale and everything's boring. I feel like I'm in a desert right now. Maybe that's your heart this morning. Or or maybe you've come this morning, you feel disconnected. You've been coming to church here for a year, whatever it is, two years. You feel like you still don't belong. You feel alone. You feel lonely. And you're wondering, what is God calling me to do? Here's what God's calling you to do. He promises, He promises that if you trust Him, And you're honest. Just go back and reflect upon your heart. Say, Lord, am am I being honest in the area that you're calling me to be honest in? Go back. Nine times out of ten, there'll be something there. God wants you to trust him to put your heart in his hands, to be honest, to have that really awkward and painful conversation with that brother or sister in Christ that's going off the deep end instead of waiting for Tommy and I to hear about it and then deal with it. That's the wrong approach. Listen, by the time I hear about it, it's usually too late. It usually is. If you're waiting for me to hear about it, or Tommy, it's usually too late. The concrete's already dry. And so God has revealed things to us. He's laid things on our heart to be honest with other people. If you have come this morning, you feel dry and stale, you're going through the motions, I'm telling you, God promises, return to me, be honest. Be honest. And I will reinvigorate your life. I'll open the floodgates. And it's gonna be like water on a dry and thirsty land. That is God's promise to us because honesty is always the best policy. And here's the deal: if you are not a Christian, if you come this morning, and you've never given your life to Christ, your first step is not to run to this person or that person. Your first step this morning is to start being honest with God. And to say, God, I confess I've run I've run from you, I've been running from you, I've been living my life the way that I want to live it. Please forgive me and cleanse me. The very first step for you is to turn back and to confess to God that you have not been honest with Him. In fact, I want to lead you in prayer now, if that's okay. Father, we pray that...